the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Wednesday edition of the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you have tuned in to the Word to Stand On for Life. And don't think for a minute we don't appreciate it. You've turned into a program that is dedicated to answering your Bible questions. We love it the best when you call and ask those questions. And we'll pretty much discuss anything that's on your heart and mind, what we believe as Christians and why. Maybe you're going through something really, really difficult, and the Bible has the answers. I keep telling you that day after day, and we'll do the best that we can to set you on the right path. For your calls, 340-9585 is your number, 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You know, I say that every day, and I wonder why we have toll-free numbers now when everybody has cell phones that can call everything local. I guess it's a holdover. If you've still got a phone um, on a wall or if you're at a pay phone, you can call 877-630-5757. You can email your questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. You can also send your questions in via our free mobile app. That's the Calvary Chapel mobile app. And if you're driving in your car, you can. the safest way for you to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. And in the process, you can get your, you connected directly to our studio producer and your question will, or your call will be next in line. So all of that is available. Obviously, I told you it's Wednesday. That means tonight, at least here at Calvary Chapel, we have our Old Testament Bible study. Tonight, we're going to be finishing 1 Samuel chapter 16. And tonight's study, and especially the next two Wednesday nights um, uh, where David meets Goliath, the, the, the practical application for New Testament Christians is immense. I, I would also add it's intense, but, but we're going to be studying that. Uh, you can watch these live stream at calvaryessay.com, uh, or you can just go to calvarysa.com and watch it at your leisure at another time. So that's tonight here at Calvary Chapel. Uh, tomorrow, date day edition with Paula. She will be in studio with me. So ladies, it is the day that we set aside for you to take your phone calls and answer your questions. And Paula, of course, the best encourager in the history of the world. Um, she is at your service on tomorrow's program. Uh, we've still got uh, Calvary Kids Vacation Bible School going on. Uh, this week, and it has been noisy and loud, and it sounds like we have about two million kids out there. I'm sure it's not that many, but it sure sounds like it, and uh, they are having a blast, so keep them in your prayers. Uh, you know, Vacation Bible School is one of those times where God will take these really, really small ones and deposit something so deep in their heart that sometimes they don't even know it's there until they find themselves in a difficult spot later in life and they'll remember, hey, Jesus loves me. I remember what they told me. And uh, I, I say that with some authority because that's exactly what happened to Paula. Um, she knew from vacation Bible school, Jesus loves me, this I know because the Bible tells me so. And she never forgot that. 
And even when she met me, she remembered that. So uh, pray for the kids. We want those deposits made deep in hearts. Okay, let me go to some questions that have been sent in as we await any phone calls that you might have today. The first one is from our mobile app from Christina. Uh, she asks in Romans seven fourteen, will we really be married to Jesus or is the picture that Paul is conveying a symbolic marriage with Christ? Well, Christina, as Paul is writing, he is painting a symbolic picture. But, and I, I just taught on this here at Calvary Chapel last week, um, there is a day coming when we really will be married to Jesus. Uh, the wedding supper of the Lamb, we will be the guest of honor. We will, all of us, male or female, be uh, Jesus' bride. And that's sort of when the marriage is consummated in the sense that we will be like him, we will be with him, and we will have all of him in all of his glory available to all of us. But as Paul is talking, especially in um, Romans chapter 7, he's talking about a picture um, that that because we belong to him, and that's what I think the NIV says rather than Mary, uh, we belong to him, it ought then to have changed the way we live. And the struggle between grace and flesh, uh, or spirit and flesh rather, I'm sorry, um, we, we, we belong to him. And we ought to then be able to put to death the flesh. Uh, we're no longer under the law, which is the context of Romans 6 and going into Romans chapter 7. Um, the law has lost its authority in our lives. And all we do then, Christina, is die to our flesh every day so that Christ in us, the hope of glory, can live and prevail. I told the church this past Sunday, Christina, that when we get to, I started, in fact, with Romans chapter 8, verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation uh, for those uh, who are loved by God, who love God, and who are called according to his purpose. And for us as Christians to get to that no condemnation zone, we have to go through Romans 6 and 7. That means we've got to understand what the appropriate response to grace is. And it all boils down to Paul's argument in the first six verses of Romans chapter 7 that because we belong to him, we no longer belong to ourselves. We no longer belong under the authority of the law. But now we are free in Christ, free to enjoy him, and free to respond to him. So, Christina, I hope that answers your question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Now, before we move on, I had a call yesterday right at the end of the program from Wesley. And I really didn't get much of a chance to talk about it because we had just less than two minutes uh, when I started to answer the question. And his question was important. What's the difference? I mean, what's the response to grace uh, versus works? And I think the, the, the thing that I didn't have the time to say yesterday, Wesley, if you're listening, is this. Whatever our response to law should be, remember that's Romans 6 and 7, when we're no longer under law, should we not respond more generously being under grace than we did when we were under law? And every human relationship with God before salvation is based on law. How good are we? Can we be good enough? We know the answer is no. We can never be good enough or do enough good. And yet, even when we were under law, even when we were lost, we would give a little bit or we would do good things. We would go through stretches where we would try to be really, really good. And we all knew, knew then and know now instinctively that there's, there's, there's a God that we're going to be accountable to. And we try to appease that God. And in many of our minds and hearts, he's an angry God. And we try to appease him with good deeds. And no doubt, Wesley, if you shared your faith, um, there, there are people that you'll, you'll start sharing with them, well, I, I'm a good person. I have a son who is a really good man. I love him with all of my heart. I am a really, really proud dad. But he's not a saved man. And since the standard of heaven is perfection, he's going to fall short apart from being born again. By the way, his name is Terry. If anybody wants to put him on the prayer list, I would appreciate it. But the idea here is we did good things even when we didn't know God. Now, those of us who have been saved by grace, should not we be more generous with our time, with our talent, with our treasure, whatever it is? We should be infinitely more generous 
than we were before we knew God. So we're not saved by works, to be sure, but real faith as a result of the grace of God. Real faith, genuine faith, produces works. James says, show me your faith without works. I'll show you my faith by what I do. He's not suggesting that we're saved by what we do. But what he's saying is there's a transformation that occurs. When Jesus storms our heart, when he comes and takes over, when we realize finally we're not our own, we're bought with a price, then we serve because he loves us instead of serving or doing works to try to get him to love us. I really hope that makes sense, Wesley, and to everybody else out there, because this is really the key to freedom. When you find out that, that you can work really hard in your own strength and nothing is going to last, when that instead is a labor of love instead of just labor, then everything changes, and it's a, a, a wonderful, wonderful place to be. So, Wesley, thank you for that thoughtful call yesterday. I appreciate it very, very much. Here is... A question from Evelyn from our email inbox. Hello, Pastor Ron. Hello, Evelyn. She says, I find myself sharing my heart a lot with my husband, but I started noticing that he doesn't share his heart even when I ask him what's on his heart. I overhear him talking to his mom and dad about what's on his heart, but not to me. I receive a generic answer. We're both believers. I really want to be closer to him and know his heart. How should I approach him? I want us to grow closer. Evelyn, there's a couple of things to, 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 to understand and not to take personal before I really get into the, 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 the part of my answer that I think will, will help. Um, when women ask men, what are you thinking? What's on your heart? The truth is, most of the time, it's nothing. At the time we're asked, we don't even know how to respond to that. Uh, we men, much more so than women, can kind of get lost in our heads. We can sort of tune things and tune people and tune stress and problems out. And the safe place for a lot of us is just in that place where there's absolutely nothing going on in our minds. Now, um, for a lot of women, it's hard to understand because there's always a lot going on in the mind of most women. So when you share your heart with your husband, uh, be grateful that he's listening. Be grateful that you can do that and you're, you're free to do that. I know women who would die for a husband who would listen as they shared their heart. That's a good thing. Now, um, you want us to grow closer. How should you approach him? Here's the answer. As believers, you need to be in the Word together. I'm just like your husband in the sense Paula will say, what are you thinking? And honestly, most of the time, the answer is nothing. I'm really not. I think all day long, and I've got so much going through my mind, so I'm just sort of spacing out in, in my brain. But when we read the Bible together, now in my case, Paula does the reading out loud because she can see and I can't. But when we read the Word together, God is the one who opens your heart. And we have some of our best conversations around what Paul is reading. You know, she's reading the same things all the time to me. But, but we can talk about those things. She can tell if something is going on in my heart as she's reading. And I can tell by her voice inflection if there's something going on in hers. And we can ask each other, so what, what's going on there? Or, or why did you respond that way? Or Paula, why did your voice uh, uh, take that tone? And, and it brings out things. And around his living and active word, I promise you God will open his heart. He will open your heart. Not only that, but he will knit your hearts together in a way that you can't possibly understand. If you and your husband, Evelyn, are not reading together, now you still need to be reading your own, uh, on your own. You need to be reading individually. God will speak to each of you and, and draw you near to him. I, I trust that you're both doing that. But you also need to set aside the time. It doesn't have to be an enormous amount of time. I tell the people here at Calvary Chapel, uh, just open the Bible, start at a place, and always read systematically. Don't just open it up and start reading somewhere. And don't fall into that trap of, well, today's the 26th of July. I'm going to read Proverbs 26. Don't do that. But read 
God's word. You read a chapter out loud, let him read a chapter out loud to you. And you just watch what happens as God begins through his word to knit your hearts together. It will change everything. The change will happen quickly. So do that. I also want to commend to you, Evelyn, um, uh, you may have heard it already on the program this week, but go to our website, calvarysa.com, and listen to Becky Alvarez's testimony from this past Monday in the Sweet Summer Devotion series, because I promise you, um, you'll hear um, from the Lord. I promise you. Thank you very much, Evelyn. Let's go to Joe holding on line one. Joe, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hello, Pastor. First, I just want to thank you for your ministry. I just love hearing you when I, when, I, when I catch you driving. So first off, thank you for blessing us with all your wisdom. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. And uh, the question, I, I, and I gave your screener my, my email, if you could please send it to me. There's one time you were addressing Calvinists and the people that are staunch five-point Calvinists, and, and you, you so gently and wisely had a rebuttal to that. Could you please uh, either share that again and then, then send it to me in an email? Would that be possible? Oh, I'll do my best with the email. You know, a, a, a discussion on Calvinism and email can take a lot of time, and I don't have a bunch of time, but I always respond to emails, Joe, so I'll do my best uh, if I can. Um, you know, Calvinism is, is not a heretical um, doctrine by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I was listening to a, a Bible teacher today who is a Calvinist, and today he wasn't talking about Calvinism uh, in any fashion or form. Turns out he's a really good Bible teacher. Uh, he's just wrong on some of those issues. And so the, the problem with Calvinism, uh, I can sum it up really in, in just sort of the middle of the TULIP. TULIP is the acronym that's used to describe the five tenets of Calvinism. And um, uh, L, it's not the only problematic portion, to be sure, but the L stands for limited atonement. And the, the Reformed theologian, the Calvinist, believes that Jesus died only for the sins of the elect. And the reason is because of the I, or it comes afterward, is because of irresistible grace. If God wanted everybody saved, then everybody would be saved. Thus, God doesn't want everybody saved. Well, the problem with that is the Bible says exactly the opposite. Peter says God is unwilling that any should perish. Jesus says that for God so loved the world, not the elect, he so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whosoever, not the elect, but whosoever would believe would not perish but have everlasting life. So the idea here, Joe, with, with Calvinism is that um, their, their systematic theology um, interprets the Scripture instead of studying the Scripture and developing a systematic theology. So everything they see and read in the Scripture, they, they, they run through the filter of their Calvinism uh, or their Calvinist systematic theology. And, and they twist and they turn. You, it's impossible to read the Bible just for what it says and come up with doctrines of Calvinism. Now, you can listen to John MacArthur, you can listen to R.C. Sproul, you can listen to some other guys, and they can convince you that that's what the Scripture really means. But what we've got to do is be good students of the Word, first and foremost. And we have to do that, Joe, in order so that we can rightly divide the Word of God based on what it says. If, as a Calvinist, I have to say to somebody that, well, I can't tell you God loves you because I don't know you're chosen. Well, that's a real problem because God is love. And Jesus said, for God so loved the world, everybody. If, as a Calvinist, um, I teach you that, that, well, God chooses some for heaven, thus he chooses everybody else for hell, and who can argue with God? What can the clay say to the, to the potter? Well, then we got a problem because that conflicts with the nature and the character of God. Now, I want to be clear here because I get a lot of pushback uh, when, when I answer questions about Calvinism. I, I do not believe, I repeat, that Calvinists are heretics. Not at all. They are members in good standing in the body of Christ. Their doctrine, their theology is often wrong in these areas. But it's because of what they've been listening to, who they've been listening to. It's because of how they were raised. And many of our great uh, uh, great men of God used to, to do marvelous things in the past. Were, were those, they were Reformed theologians or, or Calvinists. Uh, John Calvin, 
uh, was was a man. Uh, his uh, Calvin Institutes are are one of the great commentaries throughout the election junk. Uh, some of the great commentaries available to us as we study our Bible. Um, but they were they were a product of the time that they lived in. They were raised to believe this is the way it is, and. That's a hard thing to shake. So, Joe, for you and everybody else, read the Bible, find out what it says, develop a systematic theology, and then you can make decisions about what these things are. It's really important that we understand. Now, one other thing I want to say, Joe, the doctrine of election causes a lot of people to stumble. This is particularly one issue that I think every Christian needs to wrestle with Jesus on. I think you need to be convinced in your own mind about these things. Uh, who does God choose? Uh, uh, does that mean that, that our free will really isn't free? Um, we are predestined. But predestined simply means we're chosen. Now, the basis of God's choice settles the argument. And the Bible says, Romans eight twenty nine, First 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, says that we are elect or chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. It doesn't say that we're indiscriminately chosen. I choose you, I don't choose you, I choose you, I don't choose you. It doesn't mean that at all. What it means is that God knows because he knows everything. He knows who's going to become his. Romans 8.29 for me, Joe, is particularly emotional because that in my life, the application of that verse is very simply that that, that God knew that that day in February of 1991 I was going to become his and he set his love upon me in eternity past and no matter what I did no matter the evil I did no matter how hateful I was toward him or toward those he loved God decided he would never change his mind about loving me because although I didn't know before February of 1991 God always knew that I was his and he set his love upon me and refuse to remove it. That's, to me, the value of being chosen. I love the fact that I'm chosen by God, but I also understand that I had to choose Him. And that removes any tension between free will and God's sovereignty. I hope that makes sense to you, Joe. Thank you very, very much. Uh, also, Joe, just in case, today's broadcast will be available to you uh, at KSL tomorrow as a podcast. As are all of our broadcasts, you can also find it at our website at calvarysa.com. And unfortunately, I'm not a techie, so I can't really tell you how to find it on our website, but I'm sure you can. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question. We're inside four four minutes, about three minutes for this half of the program. Here's a question from um, Jenny. Jenny says, I have been told women should not wear makeup. Why would God not want us to look our best? Jenny, I don't know who told you you shouldn't wear makeup uh, unless you're a little girl and it is your parents. Uh, ignore them completely. That is a mis- a terrible misunderstanding of what Scripture says. And the person who told you that has no understanding of what Scripture says. When Paul talks about your beauty shouldn't come from outward adornment. Um, or Peter, rather, when he tells you that. Um, uh, what, what he's saying is not that outward adornment is bad or evil, but he's talking, uh, relatively speaking, our beauty should come from the, the, the inner glory of a, a Christ-loving woman. Your beauty should come from your, your walk with Jesus, the fruit of the Spirit flowing from you, and not from making yourself look good on the outside, but being ugly on the inside. So that's the relativity that Peter is speaking about. And so he's not telling you not to wear makeup. He, he's just telling you to, to you can do both. And there's nothing at all wrong with putting on makeup. And yes, I think God wants us always to put our best foot forward. Always, always, always. And let me say a couple of other things with a couple of minutes we got left in this program. Or in this half of the program. Jenny and all of the women out there, I think we should always put our best foot forward for our husbands first. Now, sometimes we'll dress up for other people, but we won't dress up for our husbands. You know, I'm home, I can chill. 
um, you should look appealing. Um, men, the same thing applies in reverse, not with makeup, of course, but, but, but we need to be considerate, we need to be kind, we need to have good manners, uh, we need to be physically fit. Um, we we want to look the best and be the best for the person that we love the most, and that is our husband or our wife next to Jesus. So that's what we should always do. You know, Paula has always had this thing, and, and I've never said anything about this uh, to her. It, it didn't come from me. This kiss comes from her. She has a thing. She never wants me to see her um, looking the same way when I left in the morning and when I come home in the evening. She always wants to be cleaned up. She wants to look nice. And she does. So the point of all this is, husbands, wives, put your best foot forward. Be clean. Smell good. Um, be polite to one another in the home. Have good manners. Jenny, it's a long answer to an easy question. We have 30 minutes left in the program. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. 340-9585. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the last half hour of the wednesday edition of the program reminder that paula will be live in studio with me tomorrow for the date day edition of the show and um i guess that's all you need to know if you know paula's going to be here it doesn't get any better than that here is a question from Tim. Thoughtful question. Uh, Pastor Ron, how do you think the church can better influence our national leaders? Tim, we can't even influence professing Christians. It's not our job as a church to influence national leaders. I know in a Western mindset, especially with much of the way uh, our evangelical faith has been represented, or I should say misrepresented. You know, there's so much politics involved. It's not our job to influence our national leaders. Our job is to pray for our national leaders. Whether we agree with them or don't agree with them, our job is to pray for them. But here's what we have to remember as a church. Our responsibility is to influence the body of Christ, to teach them to be light in the world, to be salt in the world. And the reason there's so little power in the Western church is because we can't even influence the people in our body. I want you to think about something for a minute, Tim. We have buildings called churches under professing Protestant denominationalism. We now have, under the brand of evangelicalism, some Seeker churches, for lack of a better term. We want everybody to be happy. We want to tell everybody good news. We want to accept everybody because we want to fill the seats. We have people masquerading as churches, buildings masquerading as churches, who no longer believe the Bible is the Word of God. It means they're not a church at all. They're just a gathering place. We have churches where we've so accommodated our Western culture, we don't want to inconvenience them, but you can be in and out in an hour. Instead of teaching you the Bible, we give you a 20-minute sermonette, talk about topics of the day. Well, Christians aren't capable of dealing with topics of the day unless they know what the Word of God is. You see, there has to be authority, and the church has to learn from the authority. And here's what the church needs to do, to answer your question. We need to teach the Bible. Not talk about it, not preach it, but teach it. In its context, in totality, systematically, verse by verse, through the Bible. And unless we do that, we're not going to influence anybody. And the reason we're not going to influence anybody is because people aren't going to be transformed. Paul said that 
that we can be transformed, but the way to do that is by the renewing of the mind, making new the way we think. And unfortunately, what we've had happen in our church culture is we've made church more like uh, uh, afternoon matinee. We want to entertain. We want to put on a good show. We want people to leave feeling good. We want them to laugh a little bit. But instead, we've got to proclaim the righteousness of God. And then we've got to bridge this terrible difficulty of how can we make sinners live righteous lives? More than that, Tim, we've got to be willing to tell people who are lost that they're lost. We've got to tell people who are sinning that what you're doing is wrong. You have to stop and come to Jesus. And we don't do that because it makes people so uncomfortable. The only way we can accomplish any of this is as pastors, we've got to teach the Bible. You know, having a list of ten things to do to change your life has no value if you don't know about the power that really can change the way you live your life. Right? Too often we pastors are convince everybody in the church is already saved, so we're just going to tell them, fix this, fix this, change this, change that. And all the while, they're sitting there in your church, and they're saying, well, I don't know how to do that. And the only way that we can do that is to teach the Bible. What does it say? What does it mean? How do we apply it in our lives? Why, for the life of me, I'll never understand why Every church doesn't function that way. That's what the early church did, the Acts church did. They were devoted to, clinging to the apostles' doctrine. Well, we've got that doctrine in book form. And it's our responsibility to teach them so that they can deal with the difficulties. When the church is light, those in darkness, including our national leaders, will be influenced. There's so much sin that's being accepted in the church. When I come to church here on Sunday, we have three services, and in all three services, there are going to be people there who are living together. They're not married. They're having sex. There are going to be people in our church this coming Sunday who were having sex Saturday night with somebody they're not married to. Men who are to be the leaders of the church are lost in a computer screen watching pornography. People in the church argue about things like, well, can I smoke pot? It's an herb. Or, well, drinking's not a sin. I'm free to drink. And yet they get drunk. In our church on Sunday, and I'm using my church because I don't want to offend anybody else, but it's true of every church. There are going to be husbands and wives who come to church together. They smile when... Our announcer says, greet everybody, we're going we're gonna to turn around and they'll give each other a peck on the cheek. And, and yet, just the night before, they were yelling at each other, saying horrible things. People who in church, instead of being engrossed in their spouses and their children, they're engrossed in technology. And we've got to change that. And the only way we can do that is to be different than people in the world. I was asked just um, this week, yeah, I think this week, um, why I'm not more active on social media. And I said, more active? I'm not active at all. Well, yeah, but you could get the word out more if you were just really active on social media. You know, the last thing anybody needs is a tweet from Pastor On. If you need a tweet from anybody, something's wrong. Jesus wants to tweet you every morning and he's not limited to 140 characters. He wants to speak to you. In some way, we who are pastors and Bible teachers have got to communicate that to the people that are sitting in our churches week after week. The only way I know to do it is to teach the Word and let the Spirit of God move in the hearts of those who are His. And God will make those changes. So, Tim, I don't think we're ever going to influence our national leaders 
I'd settle for just influencing the people who come to church on Sundays. Let's go to Jim on line one. Jim, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Dr. Ron. Thanks for taking the call. My pleasure. Um, I've got a question um, about Paul and uh, depression just in general. You know, I see just in my own life, I want to be sure that I have a, a good attitude toward things that come into my life. The Lord's sovereign. Um, but I, I know Paul, he, you know, he said at the end of his life in Second Timothy, you know, I've kept, I've fought a good fight, finished the course, kept the faith, and the future is laid up for me. Crown of righteousness, which the Lord will, the righteous judge will award to me, not only to me, but all to all who have loved his appearing. So, you know, he had some tough stuff, and, you know, I'm just kind of intrigued by the fact that he he did get down, but he wasn't really depressed. You know, and I, I, I'm just kind of looking to see some things that I could apply in my own life, but, I, you know, what, maybe you could comment on this. This is something he said to the group of Ephesians. He said, you know, um, Ephesians, uh, in the book of Acts, book of chapter 20, he said, And now, behold, bound in spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me that in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me, but here's, here's the ghost, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of the Lord. And he did that. You know, he, in those years intervening, he did it. So um, that, I just want you to comment on that and, you know, how he just he walked by, you know, the things that are unseen, that are eternal, but there are the things that are not, that are seen, that are temporary. Yeah, I, I can do that, Jim. Thank you. Uh, a couple of things. I, 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 you know, I've made the study of Paul's life one of my priorities in life. Uh, and, and if you read really closely, Paul had um, times when I would consider him de- really depressed and discouraged. Um, not depression as an illness as we define it in the 21st century, but Paul was, dispre- did, did, was depressed, despairing even of life. Uh, is the term that he uses. Uh, if you read Acts chapter 18, he was so discouraged in Corinth that he was ready to throw the towel in, and and, and only a visit by Jesus himself could kind of snap Paul out of it. We also get the, the sense uh, in, in reading the prison epistles that Paul had a hard time being alone. Um, he was better in a group of people um, so he had to battle those problems each and every single day. Uh, he starts out in Second Timothy. Timothy, uh, I'm all alone. Uh, my brothers, the Jews, have deserted me. Uh, even Demas is gone, and and uh, and I'm just here. I'm cold. Bring a coat, and and uh, I don't have my scriptures. Bring the parchments. Um, come as quickly as you can. Uh, Paul needed to be around people. I think that the emphasis there is that he understood the value that other people had to him and to his ministry. So he had those issues continually throughout his ministry, but he fought. He took those thoughts captive and made them obedient to Christ. That's what he wrote to the Corinthians. Um, uh, he kept his eyes on Jesus, set your heart and your mind, a place of, of affection, a place of decision on things above, where Christ is seated. At the right. So Paul, just like you and just like me, Jim, he dealt with really, really difficult things. Read Second Corinthians 12, and you find out all the difficulties he had. And, and that would crush his soul. Not only that, but being chased out of every town that he, that he, he entered into. But here's the important thing. Paul practiced what he preached. And that's what makes him such a hero. You know, Paul wasn't one of these guys that would was just always up and always positive. But when he wasn't, he got strength from the Lord. He talks about uh, Paul's uh, God's spirit that works so powerfully in one translation, another translation effectively in him. So he had to fight constantly, his sadness, his discouragement, even depression. Uh, one other thing that, that Paul said when he was talking about his his life, he said, you know, in, in addition to all these things, I face daily the pressure of all my churches, and his heart would be broken because people would sin, people would fall away, there would be false teachers come in. And you know, those are real problems of life, and Paul dealt with them by the power of the Holy Spirit. He dealt with them by taking thoughts captive and making them obedient. He fought 
he fought and he fought. I imagine those years that he was in prison. His heart was broken. I imagine there were times when he would think, is this ever going to end? We know that because he was a human. But nevertheless, he kept his eyes on Jesus. And that's the lesson for us. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate it very, very much. Let's go to Harold online, too. Harold, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ryan. Me again. You know, um, last week, I mean, this week earlier, we were discussing about different things. And I had mentioned, or you had mentioned, Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12, when Paul had, uh, it's a short, I think it's one through six, where he had died and went to heaven, or he had went to heaven. Mm-hmm. And I had, I've read that, I don't know everything, believe me. But I have read uh, read that over and over, and I never understood that he actually went to heaven. I talked to some uh, other. I'm not, you know, saying it's not true or anything. But I talked to another Christian girl at work that I talked to. That I know reads her Bible a lot, and she just flat out said, "Yes, Harold, everybody knows that," you know. But <laughs> anyway, I just didn't get it. I just thought it was a vision, and he was down here in a dream. I never dreamed. I mean, I never thought that he went to heaven. At all, just in the dream. No offense, I just that was just me, not not understanding that the way you did. But that's all I yeah, got. Uh, if you don't mind. Uh, oh, okay. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Uh, it's in Corinthians twelve. Um, Paul is defending his ministry. Now, he feels foolish to have to do it, but he's defending his ministry against those false teachers in Corinth who were trying to undermine his authority. And uh, so he says, I, I, I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I'll go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. And then he changes to speaking in the third person. But he's clearly talking about his own experience. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. But God knows was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. And then he says, I'll boast about a man like that. But I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. In other words, I've had this great revelation, but I'm not going to boast in that. I'm going to boast in my weaknesses so that the power of God can be demonstrated through my life. Now, we take the timetable. You go back. Uh, there was a time when Paul was experiencing persecution in Lystra and Derby, and on the way out of town, uh, he was stoned, and and he was uh, stoned to death. It doesn't say that, but uh, he was stoned. They left thinking he was dead. They thought he was dead because he was dead, and and Paul years later will explain this. It was at that moment that he was caught up to the third heaven. He was caught up to paradise. Uh, and he saw Jesus. Um, now, one of the things that he had to deal with when he got there was that it wasn't time for him to stay there. And so when he came back, you remember, he, he, he started ministry again, right back into the city. And, and his companions were saying, no, don't do that, don't do that. And their hearts were crushed because they thought he was dead, but now he's alive, let's get out of here and be safe. And Paul said, no, we're going to go back. And it's because he saw what he was looking forward to. Imagine how motivated we would all be if Jesus would just take us all on a trip to heaven. But, um, Harold, there's, there's unanimous consensus that Paul's not speaking about somebody, speaking about himself. And he's talking about a real trip to heaven that he saw. Two things, and then we'll go on to another question. Paul was also the only man who has shown all the things he must suffer at the time he got saved. That's one of the reasons Jesus had taken him to heaven to show him it was going to be worth it. He saw inexpressible things. Things that man's not permitted to tell. And that was a trip to heaven that changed his life. Second thing I'll share on a personal level. Uh, when I started studying the life of Paul uh, so deeply many, 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 many years ago, um, I used to pray every night when I'd go to bed. 
Jesus, want to take me to heaven today? I didn't mean to die. I said, take me to heaven like you did Paul. You know, my life was going so fast. I got saved and things started moving so quickly. Uh, I just felt like, and the devil was trying to heap his condemnation on me, but I just felt like I was making mistakes. I thought you said to do this, God, but the circumstances, because I such a young Christian, the circumstances make it look like I was wrong. And so many nights I would go to bed saying, Jesus, just take me to heaven just to show me that I'm okay, that I, I made the right decision. But obviously he never did that. He wanted me to learn to trust him and his character. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He who began a good work in me, be faithful to complete it. Well, that's what he did with the Apostle Paul. He doesn't do that now, at least if he does still take people to heaven for these visits. We would never know about it because man's not permitted to tell, so that pretty clearly points out all the people who say they've been to heaven and come back and tell you what they saw. Uh, it makes them liars or false teachers. So the idea here is that Paul went to heaven. He was stoned to death in Lystra. And um, God took him up and said, it's going to be okay. You're going back. What a bummer that must have been, huh? Thank you very much, Harold. Appreciate it. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our mobile app, Anonymous. Uh, what is your take on A Course in Miracles? Anonymous, it is poison. Uh, has nothing whatsoever to do with God, the God of the Bible. Avoid it at all costs. One of the real tragedies is that A Course in Miracles is being taught in many of our United Methodist churches, and I think some other churches now, but most notably that's where it was introduced to the churches in the West. And it is absolute nonsense and is something that you want to avoid at all costs. So stay away, stay away, stay away. Here is a question. We're inside five minutes, so if you call real quickly, we got time for one more. Here's a question from Charles from our email inbox. Hi, Pastor Ron. I've been wondering just what the devil... Uh, I've been wondering just what the devil can and cannot do. Can he cause us physical harm? Can he really make us do things? Uh, yes, I'm old enough to remember Flip Wilson. Uh, can he cause natural disasters, etc.? cetera? Uh, regards, Charles. Charles, that was funny. The Flip Wilson comment, you've got to be old to remember uh, that. The devil made me do it. Um, the, the devil can't read our minds. Um, biblically, we know he can plant thoughts in our minds. He is supernatural and powerful. Uh, and 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 can do things that we can't even begin to understand or explain. Um, but for him to be able to cause us physical harm, he has to have the permission of God. Paul is a case in point. Obviously, in the Old Testament, the, the character Job is a case in point. But he can't touch us physically apart from... God saying, okay, go ahead, and that's just not something God does. He's done it a couple times in history, uh, and he's done it to, to accomplish a greater good, a greater purpose, but, but that's just not something. I, I don't think, Charles, people like you and me, um, we're, we're involved much in conversation between the devil and, and God, so uh, for me, uh, I just soon my name be kept out of any conversation that Jesus and the devil might be having uh, in the heavens, even not understanding why he still has access to heaven. So, uh, if he causes us physical harm, it's because God said it was okay and there's a greater purpose. God is doing something we can't understand here on earth. Now, let me also say this. One of my pet peeves, Charles, is people say, well, you know, I got cancer and the devil is trying to kill me. No, the devil can't give us cancer. The devil can't give us flu. The devil can't give us a cold. Um, there's no spirit of, of rabies. It's just These are things, diseases that happen in a fallen world. And there's nothing at all that we can do to change that. But the devil can't do us. Can he make us do things? The answer to that question is no. He can tempt us to do things. But remember, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. So he can't make us do things. Now, will he tempt us to do things? Yes. Will he make those things really, really attractive? Of course. But we still are the ones in control by the power of the Spirit of God. So he can't make us do things, but he'll make us want to do things by, temp by tempting us. Can he cause natural disasters? Um, um, not without God's permission, and I don't know why God would give him permission, but um, 
we know that he can cause um, supernatural effects. Uh, for instance, the, the lake on the storm. Uh, many commentators believe, I believe uh, as well, that that was a, uh, a, a supernatural storm caused by the enemy who wanted to destroy Jesus' disciples. Jesus just turned it into a lesson on trusting him. So I, I hope that answers your question, Charles. One other thing about the physical harm, um, and I've experienced this myself. Well, God, uh, while, while the devil can't cause me, for instance, to get a headache, um, I believe that he supernaturally has the power to recreate that pain. I think it's times when I've stepped out to serve and I've fallen really, really sick, migraines or, or something else, and I know there's no cause. I know I haven't eaten anything. To cause. I've got some food allergies. I know I haven't eaten anything that would cause me to get the migraine. Uh, I just say, okay, Lord, um, I, I suspect that this is a spiritual attack, uh, but I'm going to serve you anyway. And since I'm going to serve you anyway, I just need your strength to help. Help me serve not feeling well. And and on many, many occasions, Charles, when that's happened, um, those headaches, those migraines have gone away instantly. So uh, I think he can recreate the impression of pain. Uh, I, I know that he, he causes the fear of pain. Um, one of my great battles every week is, am I going to make it through? Am I going to be healthy? Um, but God's the one in control. Hey, appreciate your question, Charles. Thanks for listening to the program. You're listening to Word to Stand Up for Life. First Samuel chapter 16 tonight, and the best part of all is Paul is in the store tomorrow. See you then. God bless. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.